Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can expand your sustainable and ESG opportunities with insights from leaders in the field. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for these weekly conversations about developments in this fast-growing industry. You might not know a lot about machine learning or artificial intelligence, but if you're an advisor or asset manager, you'd better learn because crunching the data is where it's at today. My guest today is going to tell us why. Patrick Wood Uribe is the CEO at Util, a fintech startup that uses machine learning to map and measure the impacts of every listed company in the world on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, as well as 2,000 other sustainability themes. Hello, Patrick, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thank you, Paul, and thanks for having me. Yes, I'm very glad you could join us today. This is a a very exciting new field that you and your firm are part of. And uh, let's go back a, a few years here. In 2018, Kensho, where you were head of business development, was acquired by S&P Global in the world's largest AI acquisition to date. That was a, that was a big move uh, for the industry as a whole. Uh, please tell us about that. Well, so I think the important thing there was really how it brought the uh, importance of AI as a kind of essential technology for all kinds of business into the spotlight. I think that's really been the kind of key uh, move for S&P. And we've seen uh, a variety of companies starting to use uh, AI and machine learning in their business processes and in the ways that uh, in the finance industry, in the ways that they generate data. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, I'm familiar with Arabesque, which I know does uh, this type of um, of technology or similar technologies for research. And I'm I'm always amazed at how many data points firms like yours can cover across the entire spectrum of business and investment opportunities on a global basis. That's kind of mind boggling. Uh, sometimes, but uh, give us a couple of examples of how machine learning measures positive and negative impacts of companies related to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Sure. Um, So at at UTIL, we actually use a combination of machine learning techniques to measure this. So I'll I'll focus on the the most significant ones. But our, our core metric comes from the revenues that companies generate from what they sell. And actually what we're trying to answer is sort of a simple question. And this is one of the reasons why this is so difficult uh, is that the questions are simple, but actually getting to the answers uh, is really complicated. So the, the question that we're really fundamentally asking at the beginning is in essence, do the products that companies sell make the world better or do they make it worse? And that's a really complicated thing to do because much of what companies sell actually has both positive and negative impacts at the same time. And we see this all the time in things like uh, detergents that will keep your clothes clean, but they're not good for the water supply. Or uh, there there could be uh, like classic one 
is, is burning energy that produces all kinds of benefits for the world in terms of economic development, but comes with massive climate downsides. So there's a huge, huge number of products that, that simultaneously are both good and bad for the world at the same time. So what we do is we use machine learning to try and help us solve that problem. And so we look at a universe of about 12,000 products and services that are sold by companies. And then the machine learning that we use maps and measures their impact, as you mentioned earlier, on uh, over 2000 sustainability issues, including the, the UN SDGs. And the way that we do it is that we've trained our machine learning models to read, uh, literally to read as, as you and I read only much, much faster, tens of millions of academic and scientific journal articles. And that's, there's about 120 million of those overall. And then the models interpret and aggregate all of the relationships that they find. So by doing this, we'll find all of the connections between a product and a concept or issue. So it might be electric vehicles and carbon dioxide, uh, or it could be milk and childhood incidents of asthma or whatever it might be. And then we understand when we add all of those hundreds of thousands of relationships together, we understand what the consensus is in the academic and scientific community around the relationship between electric vehicles and carbon dioxide, et cetera. And what that gives us in the end, by the time we add up all of that, uh, that, that sort of machine learning work is a metric for how revenues align both positively and negatively for all of the 17 SDGs. And it's backed by all of the evidence that we find in those scientific journals. And um, this is to, to get to your point earlier of, of the sort of mind boggling <laughs> number of data points. Um, I often joke about this because, you know, if I, I think about giving, you know, 10 academic articles to 10 people and asking them to read them in a different order, each of those 10 people would probably come out with a different idea because the most recent article would be the one that sticks most in their mind. Everybody has human failings when we interpret information all the time. And the benefit of using machine learning is that we have this kind of uh, totally untiring <laughs> way of reading millions and millions of sources uh, and still getting high quality information out of them. And so it means that when we pull it all together, we'll have the 17 SDGs. We do it as a percentage of revenue alignment, as a dollar value. We do it for every listed company in the world. So that's all of the exchanges in the world. So that covers about 45,000 companies. And I think at the last count, since we cover uh, the geographic locations of, of those companies, we offer about 750 data points for every company. And that's 45,000 companies times you know, the 750 data points that we have. So, and at the same time, that gives us, you know, obviously the scale that I mentioned, but it's a level of detail and a level of objectivity that uh, we really couldn't do uh, unless we use machine learning to help us. So Patrick, this really is a combination of academic and science-based research, if I understand mm -hmm. what you're saying. You've got all of this um, uh, journaled information Mm -hmm. uh, both from a scientific and from an academic perspective that gets put into the process of machine learning and review. Uh, and then that enables you to come out with financial information that is helpful to investors. That's a, mm -hmm. that's a pretty amazing process. It, it, it is. And, and I'm, you know, I'm enormously proud of the, the, the team that has put it together. And I think ultimately it's, it's really helping us do what, what we all got into this for, which is, which is really to, to help investors by providing them with, with better, more timely, more accurate data about these issues. Good. 
Now, Patrick, I've spoken with some public market asset managers who believe that when it comes to using ESG metrics and data points uh, that are material to a company's performance, that the, the number of ESG data points um, are, is limited in terms of the ones that actually matter in, a, in a, an industry or sector competitive uh, per, or from a, a sector competitive perspective uh, and the other firms that you're comparing them to in their industry or sector. How does this perspective square with the use of so much information through artificial intelligence and data analytics that we're becoming more and more uh, understanding about and knowledgeable about in sustainable finance? Well, so that's a great question. I think there, there are sort of uh, several aspects to it, really. I think the, the main thing is that we, we sort of face a brand new challenge these days uh, compared to how the industry looked actually if, even you know, five or 10 years ago, let alone 20 or 30 years ago, which is that we now have so much information available that the trick is really figuring out how much of it's really meaningful. And, and it's really now much more a matter of focus than it is a matter of access to data. So it, it used to be, you can sort of think of it in various different phases, but it used to be that having any information at all was helpful. <laughs> and then, as, you know, once you have that information, having more of it than someone else is, is obviously preferable. But we've really you know, gone through all of these various different phases when it comes to data that now we have so much of it that, that getting to what is meaningful is, is really, really tricky. And so I think that's, that's one component. And then the second component is, is also, I think, to do with how we really understand materiality, um, uh, which is changing. So I think this is one of the reasons why it's it's really important to expand the scope uh, of data that we consider well beyond what we currently think of as ESG. Uh, and increasingly, we see investors talk about double materiality. So not just the potential impact of the, on the company, but the actual and potential impacts the, of the company on the world around it. And really, that can only be captured if we look uh, for data further than we're looking right now. But then that sort of brings us back to the same place, which is that as that scope expands, so the burden of handling and processing all of that data expands as well. And again, we come back to needing technologies that can help us uh, to do that efficiently. Um, but I think in the end, what's really critical, and this is, this is really true of all market data actually, is that new data, wherever it comes from, should deliver new information to the market. It, it's, you know, it, it's sort of redundant if you, if you just duplicate existing information. And so you know, at that point, that's where we really need uh, these technologies to help us not only bring new information, but bring the right new uh, uh, kind of informative and valuable information to the market. Yes, and of course, what you're referring to, Patrick, I mean, from a supply chain standpoint, from all, for a lot of companies, of course, is the scope of the the data. Uh, let's just choose related to carbon emissions mm -hmm. can extend far beyond the company itself in terms of uh, how how nature is impacted, how much carbon pollution is going into the atmosphere, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, so you're, you're really, if I understand what you're saying, it's really reaching along that entire thread, all of the, the every scope of, of that uh, company's um, 
use of resources and how it impacts the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good. Well, now the U.S. House of Representatives uh, and the Biden administration are very active in this area um, at the moment. Um, and the, the House recently passed the ESG Disclosure and Simplification Act. Under this bill, the SEC will create definitions of ESG metrics, as well as mandating standardized ESG disclosures. Your response to the passage of this act was to write a newsletter entitled, Give Us Data, Not Disclosure, in which you talked about large tech sector firms that are asking the SEC that ESG data not be included in 10K filings. So Patrick, uh, tell us first of all, what a 10K filing is and why do companies want to exclude ESG data from their 10K ESG filings? So this is, this is also uh, fascinating to me and, and, uh, and a, great, uh, a great question. So a, a 10K is, is an annual filing required by the Securities and Exchange Commission, so the SEC. Um, and it's, it's really more like a form, actually. It's, it's, it, you know, we often refer to it as an annual report, but it's actually not. It's, 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 it's Form 10K. Uh, and it covers hard financial data like revenues and expenses of companies. And it's, it's different from other less formal reports like a sustainability report or even the, the actual annually, annual uh, report booklet uh, that's generally polished. It's got pictures and, and those sorts of things. It's sort of um, more, um, uh, I would say, kind of friendly to the eye than a, than a, a 10K, which is, which is really very, um, uh, I'm trying to find the exact word to describe it, but it's, it's, it's all hard numbers really. Hmm. Um, and so uh, the 10K includes a section on the company's risks. And there's, there's been increasing pressure on companies to disclose ESG issues uh, and to disclose uh, particularly climate related issues altogether. Uh, and recently this, this push to include them in the 10K has, has resulted in a kind of counterintuitive set of results. Um, one of them is that large tech firms have generally been quite climate friendly in principle. So they don't depend on fossil fuels in a way that an airline or an oil company does, for example. But even these large tech firms uh, have asked for ESG information not to be part of the 10K because it would open them up to legal risks because there's so much uncertainty in the data uh, when it's not these kind of concrete financial metrics. Essentially, the, the 10K is a formal enough document that it really kind of binds them or requires them to, to, to stick to those disclosures in a really meaningful way. And they're reluctant to do it because the, the data is very uncertain. And so this is where I think it's so important to hold ourselves to a higher standard, but also to sort of hold non-financial data of the kind that covers ESG issues and sustainability issues to the same standards of objectivity and concreteness uh, as we can uh, as we do for, for financial data. Um, because I think the disclosure and the impulse to disclose is exactly the right thing. We want investors to know as much as they can know because that's, uh, that's part of the functioning of an efficient market, but it has to be based on real evidence. And I think without that real evidence, disclosure is just uh, another person expressing their opinion. And so, of course, as, you, as you're well aware, there are many platforms in, uh, in the sustainable finance sector that are focused on doing that and many of them 
are across different um, uh, economic uh, borders, et cetera, uh, the US, the UK, China, et cetera. How is all of that looking from your perspective as an unfolding process for getting more clarity around these types of non-financial disclosures? Well, so I think really it is something that I see as uh, it will require the the sort of combined efforts of an ecosystem. I think that's really, an ecosystem is probably the best way to think about it because there are a lot of different stakeholders with a lot of different uh, goals and a lot of things, different things that they want to get done. And I think ultimately the appetite is there among investors, but really it is a combination of uh, giving companies the appropriate frameworks to disclose what information is appropriate, finding ways for companies like mine to uh, source that information, process it, and deliver it to investors in a way that is is timely and meaningful them, to them and uh, allows them to make decisions. Uh, so I think it really is a kind of combination of those, uh, all those different elements that needs to happen at once. And so I, I, I welcome the, the impulse. And fundamentally, I think we will eventually get to a place where we have you know, concrete, uh, reliable data that covers all kinds of, of uh, financial activities. Yes, well, I was reading this morning uh, an article in Bloomberg about the um, EU uh, ESG disclosure frameworks that have that are being put together, and apparently there are now fewer assets than there were even a couple of years ago that actually are meeting the 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 grid, if you will, of that EU taxonomy, uh, even though the expectation is that over time, there will be significantly more assets invested this way. Uh, so it seems like at least there's some, some preliminary uh, guidance coming out of the EU's work that says, yes, if you didn't consider this, then this isn't really uh, an E, S, or G matter, uh, and let's move on to the next, so. Right, absolutely. Okay, great. Well, sustainable investing has grown dramatically as just about everybody who reads the financial news knows over the last year. Uh, as deepening environmental crises were joined by pandemic-induced anxiety related to long neglected social issues like systemic racism and workplace gender and income inequality. And the outlook for the growth of money management, as I was just saying, using an ESG lens is continuing. So what can machine learning and artificial intelligence do to support the many passively managed ESG branded portfolios in being effectively positioned for long-term asset allocation across all economic sectors? Because these are the types of portfolios that you find in many uh, retirement planning accounts, for example. Absolutely. And I think uh, here again, it, it does come down to data, but um, what we're seeing at the moment, um, and, and I think it, it's sort of a product of our, our current circumstances, which is, I, I do think that over the past couple of years, there's been this, this huge increase in demand for, for ESG branded products altogether. Um, and yet ESG data is itself only a, a fraction of, of available market data is the, the sort of first, first piece of it. Um, and also it is very, very highly concentrated in certain areas. So it, it means that um, we can, when we start thinking about 
expanding data coverage, when we think about uh, deeper or more detailed or more objective data, I think it, first of all, it, it gets us through an initial barrier that I think we're, we're coming to and we're, we're sort of where we will get through fairly soon, which is addressing a number of, of so-called greenwashing concerns. The, the, the point that you made earlier about the EU is one of them, where we have to make sure that, that you know, we can't just label anything we choose as, as ESG because it, it sounds like it's you know, good marketing or whatever. But I think the other side of it is we can start to use technologies like machine learning and AI to really improve the quality and timeliness of the data that goes into these products. Um, and in the case of, of ESG brand portfolios, that data is becoming really, really important and, and sort of reaching a, a, a head at the moment, which is that most ESG ETFs, um, first of all, they lean towards including large companies. And that's because large companies have, have more resources to disclose. They have, uh, you know, it's, it, it's just more in their budget uh, to satisfy many of those requirements uh, for traditional ESG uh, as, it, as it's been defined until today. Um, and then also generally those products are really focused on green investments, um, but they've left behind a number of other issues, as you pointed out, um, and also the kind of knock-on consequences of focusing on green investments of, of you know, what happens uh, if you, for instance, focus on, uh, on green investments, but then that produces a strain on mining for the minerals that go into more sustainable products, for instance. So there's, there's kind of unintended, unintended consequences that we need to capture through better better data capture and, and processing. Um, and then lastly, I'd say at the moment, what we're seeing that I think is really critical to address is a, a massive concentration that ESG products bring into a relatively small number of companies. So um, at the situation that you pointed out in the EU is, is actually for passive products is, is, is not great because it, it steers much more capital towards a smaller number of companies. And so I think what we do need is data that's accurate and, and timely about the sustainability of a much, much bigger range of companies that is still trustworthy and objective and, and provides investors with what they want. Um, and that allows investors to diversify across uh, geographies, across industries uh, in very healthy ways uh, that I think will be really important for those, for those products as well as for individual investors anyway. So I'd say with machine learning uh, and with all of these technologies at our disposal and the sheer amount of data that, that we, can, we can start to access and process, there's a, a huge opportunity to serve investors with a much greater variety of products um, that have more favorable risk and reward and, or even impact profiles and to create a much more efficient market overall when it comes to these non-financial and financial outcomes. Great, thank you very much, Patrick. And, and uh, we're just about out of time for today. Uh, so I want to thank you, Patrick Wood Uribe, CEO at, UT, at UTIL, for taking the time to join us today. And to our listeners, please join us again next week for another episode. Patrick, where can our listeners get in touch with you and with UTIL? not only about what we've discussed on the podcast program today, but uh, get more information about UTIL's business overall. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Paul, for having me. It's been a great pleasure. And thank you for these thoughtful questions. It's always great to, to get a chance to talk about these issues. Um, and for, for those of your listeners who are invested in, uh, interested in, in, in contacting UTIL, uh, please visit our website, which is util.co, so .co. 
uh, util is U-T-I-L. And you can get in touch with us uh, by email at info at util.co. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Great, Patrick, thanks again for your time today. And I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast. <laughs>